Well, good morning. If it's okay, I'm going to make a minor adjustment. I hope everybody's doing well this morning. Y'all look great. Y'all are beautiful people. You know what? In church circles, I've been around a little bit, different denominations. We don't tell each other that enough, I don't think. We're beautiful people. Look to your neighbor, tap him on the shoulder, and tell him you're beautiful. This may be really weird, <laughs> but I think you're beautiful. And I'm happily married. Amen. I love being in God's house. And when I met Pastor Israel this week and came in here, it just brought back a flood of memories being raised in church. And this sanctuary reminds me of the sanctuary that I was raised in as a five-year-old boy. And I'm just happy to be here. My name is Richard Wilson. I'm part of Blacksmith Ministries. I live here in Hamilton, Roll Tide, Alabama, with my beautiful wife, Christy, and my lovely daughter, Savannah Mariah. I'm just so honored to have this opportunity to minister with you. Um, There's one thing I would like to do, though. Before we get into the message about a Lazarus call, and if we are to preach the gospel, and if we have to use words, that's where we're going this morning. This morning's message is preach the gospel, and if you have to use words. Before we get there, I want to tell you a story. Is that okay? My wife and I, Christy, we went to Tanzania, Africa in 2013, and we're teaching at Kilimanjaro Christian Bible College for pastors. And it's this beautiful campus, and they have this little chapel right across the way from where we were teaching. And some ladies decided to go in there and start praying. And that sound of that prayer filled the classroom. I don't know if you've ever experienced a tangible presence of God's presence when someone starts praying for you, but it's like you could literally feel God in that room. And I thought about this morning while we're praying for Pastor Israel and the team and they're going to Macon, Georgia, what would happen if we, this morning, before we even get into the message, if we would just stand up and pray for them while they're traveling? I know we prayed for them this morning in the parking lot, but we just want to stand behind them in prayer together. Can we do that? So if you will all stand, we're just going to pray a few minutes for Pastor Israel and the team. So Father, I thank you right now that you have led them on this journey. This is a place that you want them to go. This is a missions trip. We thank you that you have divine and designed appointments for every single person on this trip. There's going to be divine encounters. They are going to lead people to Jesus. People are going to be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into your kingdom, the kingdom of your beloved son. They're going to be transformed from darkness into light. So right now we send the word, we send prayers, lifting up Pastor Israel and his team for strength. Even in Psalm 84, when they go from strength to strength, even as they're traveling right now in the vans, that they receive strength in their natural bodies. Even when they stand for lunch, they feel refreshed, ready to go. We thank you for this opportunity opportunity that they have. Lord, we declare even physical strength when they minister by building homes. You give them physical strength when they put roofs on houses, Father, that you provide divine protection over them. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you very much. How many of you know when you agree in prayer, things happen? If you have a prayer request, a prayer need, get to somebody that you know that prays and say, will you agree with me for this specific thing? And God will move. I've just experienced it myself. I don't know really how to explain it. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's agreement. But that's where we are. So thank you for that. If you have your Bibles, we will turn to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And again, this morning's message is the Lazarus call. We are called to preach the gospel. And if we have to, use words. So in John chapter 12, verse number 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus with one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil, spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. That would be very hard for me because I don't have a lot of hair, but for her, like Savannah and Ryan, they've got long hair, they could probably wipe that oil in a little bit better. Sorry, that was a really poor attempt at humor, so I'll apologize. I'll probably have a few more of those. I'm just going to apologize ahead of time, if that's okay. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Verse 4, but one of his disciples... Why he's a disciple, I don't know. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, or a year's wage, and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Verse number 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. We are called to preach the gospel, and if we have to, use words. Many Jews came to faith in Jesus at Lazarus' life, but there's no recorded statement that Lazarus ever preached a message. I'm all about preaching. It's what I do. I love it. But how many of you know that we can preach just as loud with our lifestyles than what we say with our mouths? Now, words have power. I'm all about that. But I also want to say equally important is how we live our lives. We are to live our lives in such a way that people will come to Jesus. So let me tell you about this story. Let me set it up a little bit. In John chapter 11, Jesus is chilling somewhere, not in Bethany. Chilling, I don't know, can I still use that term? Do people still use chilling? I'm 44 years old. It's kind of what I used maybe 20 years ago. So he's relaxing. Would that be better? So he's relaxing somewhere, but his friend Lazarus is sick to the point of death. So Lazarus' sisters, Miriam and Martha, send word. I don't know if they do an email or a text 
or on Facebook or Instagram, smoke signal. Somehow they get word to Jesus that their brother is sick to the point of death. And immediately Jesus does nothing. I'm like, I read that scripture in John chapter 11. I'm like, what do you mean he doesn't do anything? Jesus stayed in the place where he was for two more days after hearing that one of his closest friends was sick to the point of death. And sometimes I feel like in situations in my own life, I'm facing something that's very severe. And I'm praying to Jesus, and he doesn't immediately move. How many of you have found that to be true? When you're encountering something, whether it's a sickness or a job situation or a relational issue, and we're wanting Jesus to move, but his first instinct is not to answer that prayer right away. So he tells his disciples, Lazarus is sick, and we're going to wake him up. So as they start going, it's a two-mile journey from where he was, or Bethany, the city where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were, were two miles from Jerusalem. It takes him four days to get there. And when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Can you imagine? You know that Jesus is going to answer your prayers. And when you send the word and nothing happens... And not only does nothing happen, but it actually gets worse. He goes from being sick to dying. Jesus, where are you? Where are you? How come you didn't answer my prayer? How come you let him die? Have you ever been there? So that's exactly what Martha does when she comes to Jesus. When Jesus strolls into town, she's like, Jesus, where were you? Didn't you get the word? Lazarus was sick. Our brother was sick, the one whom you love. And he died. And I can just see Jesus right now, just picture him just so full of grace and so full of peace. He's not worried. He's not stressed. He is just full of grace. And he says, Martha, you're about to see something that you've never seen before. He's going to raise from the dead. And then Martha in her mind's thinking, okay, I believe you. I know who you are. I believe what you say. But in her thinking, she only knew that the resurrection meant at the last day when all believers would be raised in the resurrection glorified body. That's her only paradigm for what he just said. He said, no, Martha, I'm the resurrection. He's going to live today. And then you see Martha's like, well, hold on a second. Um, He's been dead four days. I know you want to go to the tomb and roll away the stone, which is kind of setting up where he's going to go a few chapters later, roll away the stone. But he says, take away the stone. She's like, no, no, whoa, hold on, whoa, whoa. He's been in there four days. The, the smell is overwhelming. So we see Martha, when Lazarus is sick at the beginning of chapter 11, is begging Jesus, Jesus, to come. And now the situation's gotten worse, worse than it was before. And now Jesus is here. She's almost like, Jesus, stop. Aren't we like that? We're begging Jesus to come. Then when he gets here, we're like, hold on a second. I don't know about that. He said, take away the stone. Takes away the stone. And I believe that he's probably 10 to 15 feet away. There's no scripture saying that. That's just how I imagine it in my mind. They take away the stone and he points. And there's many people there. And I believe that as he points, all eyes are on him. And as he points to the tomb, he says, Lazarus, come forth. 
And then all eyes, you can go to the tomb. And out of this tomb comes Lazarus wearing grave clothes. That would freak me out. We've got a cemetery right over here. What would happen if we called one of them to come forth and the ground starts moving and they start coming out? Well, I would be freaking out. I'll be honest with you. And a lot of people freaked out too because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's an unbelievable miracle. But we just read that the chief priests wanted to kill Jesus for raising him from the dead. We also read they wanted to kill Lazarus. Well, I'm thinking if I'm Lazarus, I'm dead. Jesus just raised me from the dead. If you want to kill me, bring it on, bro. <laughs> I've already been dead before. He'll just raise me up again. But why are the chief priests so indignant about trying to kill Jesus from this astonishing miracle? Jesus was a miracle man. When he multiplied a few fish and a few loaves of bread to feed 5,000 men, not including the women and children that are there, so it's more like 15,000 people, you don't see the chief priest trying to kill him then. Or even in John chapter 1 when he does this beginning of miracles where he turns the water into wine. You don't see anything about the chief priest trying to kill Jesus then. Healing people that are blind, blind Bartimaeus. And Mark chapter 5 saying, heal me. Uh, Mark chapter 10, sorry about that. Don't misquote it. Heal me. Or the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. She gets healed by Jesus. None of these miracles caused the chief priests to want to kill Jesus. But we find in Mark 11, sorry, John 11, where after they raised Jesus from the dead, in John eleven fifty three, 53, then from that day on, the day that he raised Lazarus from the dead, they, the chief priests, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they plotted to put Jesus to death. Why do they want to put Jesus to death? For doing good. It's not like he's killing people. He's doing the opposite of killing people. He's raising them from the dead. In fact... This is not the first instance that he's raised some, someone from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter. Jairus was a leader in a local synagogue, and his daughter was sick. She was 12 years old. And he came begging and pleading, Jesus, will you come to my house? Will you touch my daughter who's at the point of death? Jesus doesn't delay there like he did with Lazarus. He said, let's go. On the way, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. He gets to Jairus' house. He puts everybody out of the house. And he calls her from the point of death alive. And people are losing their minds. He just raised a little girl who just died from the dead. Clearly, Jairus, being a ruler of the synagogue, would have had some type of connection. We don't know that he's a Pharisee, but he would have had some kind of connection to the Pharisees and the chief priests as being a ruler of the synagogue. Clearly, he would have told them what happened, but we don't see the chief priest trying to kill Jesus then. 
There's another instance where Jesus raises someone from the dead. In Luke chapter 7, there's a widow in the town of Nain. And she's already lost her husband. Now she loses her only son. And they're leaving the town of Nain. He's already dead. He's in a coffin and they're going to bury him. As they're leaving the city gate, here comes Jesus going into the city. That's one thing. If you die immediately, you take your last breath and someone's there and raises you from the dead. That's an astonishing miracle. But if you've been dead a few days and you're in a coffin and they're going to bury you and you get raised, just in my thinking, that's a greater miracle. I don't know why. Maybe that's just the way I think. But in this story in Luke chapter 7, when he raised the widow's dead son, he's in a coffin. And he just touches the boy's body and he rises from the dead. If I would have seen that, I think I would have lost my mind too. But nowhere do you see the chief priest saying, we're going to kill Jesus for that. You don't see where they're going to kill the widow or her son that was just raised for that. You don't see where they want to kill Jairus or his daughter for being raised from the dead. What is it about Lazarus that makes them so indignant to kill Jesus? Maybe it's the fact that it was Lazarus that was raised from the dead and not the fact that he raised the dead person. Maybe Lazarus had so much impact and influence on a culture that him being raised from the dead would cause them to want to kill Jesus. Okay, I can believe that. But what do we know about Lazarus? From Scripture, we know that he was a friend of Jesus. We know that he lived in Bethany, which is called a city of misery. Everybody been to a miserable city? where you just pull in and it's dark and it's gloomy and it's cloudy. Maybe like Auburn. Is Auburn a miserable city? Any War Eagle fans here? I didn't think so. Oh, there is one. Lord, we pray protection over them right now. It's football season's coming. <laughs> no, we're just kidding. But Lazarus is from a miserable place. He has two sisters. That's all we know about him. There's no recorded statements. But there's something that Lazarus has done. There's something that he's done with his life that makes these chief priests want to kill him and Jesus for raising him from the dead. So because we don't have it right in front of us, we've got to dig a little deeper. Just like the Bible said, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. So we're going to dig a little deeper. What do we know about Lazarus? He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. What do we know about Martha? Martha have a servant's heart. Excuse me for a second. Martha, the first encounter we see with Jesus and Martha and Mary, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teachings. And Martha is so busy serving, she's, she's carrying the dishes here and the drinks here and she's running over here and she's getting some food prepared over here and she looks at her sister and she's like, what are you doing? Come help me, Jesus. 
Tell her to help me. He's like, Martha, Martha, you're too caught up in your serving. It'll be okay. So we see that Martha has a servant's heart, but what does that tell us about Lazarus? I don't think a lot. But we go back to our scripture in John chapter 12, and we see Mary doing something amazing. Can we go back to that scripture, John chapter 12, verse number 3? Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. It's in a very intimate act of worship. But I don't think this story tells us the complete picture. You know how every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they can tell the same story, but they'll have an emphasis on something a little bit different. They'll have a perspective where they want to focus on something a little bit different. Have you all noticed that in Scripture? Just like at the crucifixion of Jesus, he says eight different things from the cross, but no one gospel has all eight saints. So the gospel writer will point out one or two things to emphasize to that particular audience. So in this scripture, we're going to go to another gospel writer to find out more about the story of who Mary is pouring the oil on Jesus' feet. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to take a left turn from John and go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Okay, then one of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to him But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. 
Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this is the same Mary who's so close to Jesus. Before she had an encounter with Jesus, she was a notorious sinner. More likely, she was the most known prostitute in her town. Mary, the one who sat at Jesus' feet. Everybody knew her for what she did. Mary. And I love that Mary did this in a Pharisee's house. She didn't care who was in front of her. She had to be around Jesus. She had to change her life. When she got down and she began to cry on his tears, that was her act of repentance saying, I want to be changed. I don't want to live this life anymore. I want to be with you. I want to be yours. And Simon, the Pharisee, didn't know what to do with that. Let's be honest. Have you ever been around somebody that's just crazy for Jesus? They're just radical. The first time I encountered somebody like that, I didn't know what to do with it. I really didn't. I saw the passion and the zeal that they had for Jesus, and I got convicted. And I said, I don't love him like that. I don't have a relationship with him like that. I don't know him like that. I don't pray to him like she does. I don't read the word. And it's not a comparison thing, but I was just convicted. This passion she had for Jesus, she didn't care where she was, who she said it in front, in front of. This act of love, this act of worship, she knew who Jesus was, but Simon the Pharisee, the religious leader, didn't. The one that was supposed to know who Jesus was didn't have a clue. And here comes a prostitute the most most notorious prostitute in the town taught Simon who Jesus was. Now I begin to make the connection between Mary and Lazarus and why there was so much hate for Jesus by the chief priest when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I firmly believe Lazarus was a notorious sinner just like Mary. It's not recorded in the Scripture, It's just what I believe based on my investigation of Mary's life. That Mary, think about somebody in Hamilton. Think about somebody that gets arrested all the time. Thinks about doing things you know they shouldn't be doing. Drinking, drugs, running around, sleeping around. There's no way they're going to get saved. No way they're coming to church. They're anti-Christian They make fun of Christians. Think of somebody like that in Hamilton. We probably know somebody like that. And then they get saved. And then their conversion is radical. Like all they can talk about is Jesus. All they can think about is Jesus. Their lifestyle is all about Jesus now, this radical transformation. That's what I believe happened to Lazarus. He saw the fruit of his sister's life. And it so impacted him that he wanted the same encounter that he wanted to be impacted too, that he wanted to give his heart to Jesus, that he didn't want to live in darkness anymore. And you see Jesus loving Lazarus. 
And you see him loving Mary and Martha. That's where he stayed when he went to Bethany. I'm going to conclude by saying there was a Lazarus call that day that Jesus went to his tomb. And when he rolled away the stone, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And when he said, come forth, he empowered Lazarus to rise from the dead. But that's not the first time that he'd raised him from the dead. We know the Bible tells us that for the weight that all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And we know that Mary's had an unbelievable transformation encounter with Jesus, and so has Lazarus. The way he lived his life, the way Mary lived his life convicted people. And when he was at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, that was the second time that he actually raised him from the dead. And when Lazarus comes out, and all of the Jewish people that are there, they put their faith on the one who called them out. And the chief priests are like, if he is turning sinners into saints, we're supposed to be like that. Not them. They don't have the right to do that. They haven't studied the Torah. They haven't gone to school. They don't know God like we do. How are they having these transformational encounters? And we're not. We've got to stop this or people are going to believe that they can receive grace without earning it. We've got to stop this movement now. And that's the whole point. The Pharisees believed that you had to adhere to the law strictly. And even if you stepped out of it, you would be condemned. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace. And then when you're saved by grace, you're empowered to do works. Grace and works are not enemies. It's not grace or works. It's grace and works. And so they wanted to put this to the end. they got to stop this now. People will believe that they can go to heaven just by faith. they got to earn it. And Jesus said, no. And I wonder today if there's another Lazarus call going forth. And just like what he did with Lazarus, the Lazarus call has two parts. The first part of the Lazarus call is Will you follow Jesus for yourself? Will you make him the Lord of your life? Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you surrender everything? When you look at him and knowing that he is from God, he is God. He took all of the penalty of our sin. He took my sin, the penalty so I could be in relationship with him right now. When you receive Jesus, eternity starts right now. Relationship with Jesus starts right now. And then the second part of the Lazarus call is, will you live your life empowered by Jesus, just like Lazarus did that would cause many other people, many other people to have faith in Jesus just by the way we live. Preach the gospel. And if you have to, 
Use words while you're at school. Can you love Jesus in such a way that people are convicted just like Simon the Pharisee was when Mary came in? While we're at work, while I'm at FedEx, can I love Jesus? Can I live in such a way that will draw people to him? They're not, I'm not drawing people to me. We're drawing people to Jesus. While we're at NTN Bower, while we're at the hotel, while we're on vacation, while we're at the beach, while we're on the river fishing, while we're watching football, roll tide, can we live our lives in such a way that people will just look at us? Like, there is something different about you. Before I have them play, I want to tell you a testimony. I think it's appropriate. It's mine. I was born and raised in church. I got saved when I was five. I loved Jesus. By the time I was age of 15, I fell into sin. And I hated it. And I asked God to deliver me. And I asked God to deliver me. I asked God to deliver me. And it didn't happen. I confessed sin. I knew everything I knew to do. I read the Bible, prayed, worshiped, go to altar calls a hundred times. Nothing happened. Still bound in sin at the age of 15. Well, some would say that this particular sin would grow out of it. So by the time you're in college, it'll stop. It didn't. Well, then you would think that the time this sin, when you get married, that'll stop. It didn't. And then you think, well, by the time you have children, the sin cycle will stop. And it didn't. Do you know how tormenting it is to hate sin, but it has you so snared that it just pulls on you and you have to go when it demands? And then you hate it. And you say, God, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And you start walking in a circle. God, I'll never do it again. God, I'll never do it again. And you're good for six days. And it starts to pull on you. And you fight it and you fight it and you can't. 21 years. 21 years of living a vicious sin cycle of loving God, being stuck in sin, desperately, desperately wanting to get free. Desperately. Altar call after altar call after altar call. Nothing. It's like Mary and Martha sending word to Jesus. Lazarus is dying. Come. No response. 21 years later, a friend of mine says, I got a podcast I think you should listen to. I said, lay it on me. Because I was desperate to be free. I listened to the podcast and I got so convicted. I got so convicted. I had another lover in my heart that was preventing me from seeing Jesus clearly. And the other lover was as simple as a football team. For me, it wasn't Alabama, it was the Dallas Cowboys. And I was so passionate about the Dallas Cowboys and every time they played that I didn't have any passion left for Jesus. And this sin cycle had me. But when I said, okay, I recognize they have my heart. They didn't have all of my heart, but they had a good part of it. They had a grip. This sin could come in. And when I let them go, 
this particular podcast was about baptism, I got baptized again. August 30th, 2009. And the sin cycle broke. That'll be eight years this coming August 30th. And I'm talking about complete freedom. So when this particular sin comes and knocks on the door, not only do I not answer, I have no inclination or pulling or drawing toward whatsoever. In fact, I, honestly, I want to kind of come up to the door with a shotgun. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about is available. This radical transformation that only Jesus can do when we give him all of our hearts. This is the call today. If you will all stand, please. I'm going to ask, first of all, if everybody will close their eyes and bow their heads. Nobody looking around. This is a very solemn moment. This is a very holy moment between us and the Lord, just like there's nobody in the room, just you and Him. The first part of the Lazarus call is giving your heart to Jesus. And I want to make sure that I make that first. If you are in this room and you have never made Jesus the Lord of your life and you want to receive Jesus today, I want you to raise your hand right now. Amen. The second part of the Lazarus call is will you live your life in such a way that will bring others to Jesus? Will you live your life with Him first and foremost? Will you Preach with your lifestyle, drawing others to Jesus. Where He's first, there's no first and a co-pilot. He's got to be first. He's got to have your complete heart, even from my own testimony. If you hear the testimony, if, if there's another thing that's part of your heart, He's not first. If you are willing to make Him first and live your life in such a way that others will come to Jesus. I want you to raise your hand right now as a commitment to Him. See your hand. See your hand. I 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 see your hand. Thank you. You can put your hands down. We're going to end our service by us all singing this song, this amazing song of this grace that's been afforded to us.
Thank you so much for being here this morning. This is my pastor in Virginia. I just want to do it here. I think